0: PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craig, offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Becky Craig, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the November issue of PTJ. This is a really fun issue. It's not only interprofessional, many of the articles are interprofessional, it's also between or among countries. So I'm so pleased to bring exciting topics to you that are shared collaborations. The first paper is entitled Predicting Response to Motor Control Exercises in Graded Activity for Patients with Low Back Pain. Pre planned secondary analysis of a randomized control trial. The study was led by Luciano Macedo and colleagues. The colleagues are very impressive and from all over Canada as well as Australia and the Netherlands. The purpose of this paper, as it said in the title, is a secondary analysis, and the authors were really interested in finding out whether there was a way to get a bigger effect from this trial. So what they did was they used a 15-item questionnaire called Lumbar Spine Instability Questionnaire as one of the variables to examine to see if there was something at baseline that would predict which types of patients responded to which of the exercises. There were two types of exercises. One is based and grounded in motor control. It's also sometimes called Lumbar Stabilization Exercises. And the other exercise program is called Cognitive Behavioral Approach. Those are the two different exercises. But what's lovely about this trial is that those two exercise programs are grounded in a rationale. So motor control exercises were suspected to be useful when patients perhaps had either excessive or reduced spinal stability, whereas the graded activity was thought to be more useful for a person who had impairments such as endurance, muscle strength, or imbalance, or had unhelpful beliefs or behaviors concerning back pain. So what the secondary analysis did was it really used this variable of the lumbar spine instability questionnaire as one of the analyses to see whether patients who had more or less spinal instability responded differently to the two interventions. And what's exciting about the finding is is that it appears to validate the rationale for the two treatment techniques, at least in this particular sample of patients. So patients who had more spine instability or a score of greater than 9 on the questionnaire responded best to the treatment that was motor control, whereas those who had a lower score responded best to the other exercise program. So please take time and read this article. I think it reinforces our concept of patient classification for determining the best outcome. The next paper is entitled Task-Specific Training in Huntington Disease, a Randomized Controlled Feasibility Trial. This trial and the study was led by Laurie Quinn from Cardiff University in the United Kingdom. There are other colleagues who are from Oxford Brooks University, Churchill Hospital, Barbary Center, and University of College London, and finally Sheffield Children's Hospital. It's a team of physicians and therapists in the hospital and in universities. For those of you who don't know about hunting disease, it is a autosomal dominant neurodegenerative disease that comes on in midlife and Experiences about 15 to 20 years of gradual deconditioning, inability to ultimately to move, difficulty with thinking, as well as mobility. And from my perspective, it's a disease that I never thought about physical therapists being involved in, which is totally wrong. So this is a really exciting study for me. Woody Guthrie is an old folk singer who was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. And since it's an autosomal dominant disease, everyone always watched Arlo Guthrie to see if he would inherit his father's disease, which he didn't. Back to the study, the authors were very interested in finding out whether a specific home-based physical therapy intervention would be safe and could actually lead to good outcomes with his patient population. The rationale for the treatment was repetition, task-specific practice, but it was also tailored to the individual patient's needs. I'm really delighted with the study. I think bottom line is that they demonstrated excellent outcomes in terms of improvement, and they would really like to use this study for a larger-scale trial. The third study is entitled Rehabilitation Therapies After Botulinum Toxin A Injection to Manage Limb Spasticity. This is a systematic review led by Bianca Kinnear, and her colleagues. Her colleagues and she are from the University of Wollongong, Latrobe University, University of Sydney, and Monash University, all in Australia. Many of you are aware that botulinum toxin injections have been used for quite a while to treat persons with muscle spasticity. The question is often should the treatment alone be sufficient or should this treatment be? combined with some other rehabilitation technique to optimize the effect of the injections. So these authors were interested in looking at the literature to see if there was yet a conclusion. It's surprising to me that they were only able to find 11 studies with 234 participants, most of whom had stroke, and that even though there were 11 studies, the studies were so variable in their interventions and the results were confounding that the authors were basically unable to come up with a really strong consensus about whether or not the addition of therapy to the botulinum toxin was useful. So I'm going to use this as an example of why we really need to look at the development of clinical guidelines and why we need to consider seriously standardizing When the authors looked at the types of therapy, of rehabilitation therapies that had been used in the reviews, they included motorized ergometer cycling, electrical stimulation, stretch interventions, constraint-induced movement therapy, task-specific motor training, and other types of exercise programs. So with so much variability in how patients were treated, it was very difficult to come up with a strong conclusion they found some evidence to suggest that combining some sort of stretch therapy with the botulinum toxin may be effective. But again, this is an area that really calls for a more systematic, agreed-upon approach to rehabilitation so that we can see whether or not the therapy in addition to the botulinum toxin augments outcomes. The next study is the dose-response relationship between cumulative lifting load and lumbar disc degeneration based on magnetic resonance image findings. The authors are led by Yu Kuo, who's from the Institute of Occupational Medicine at National Taiwan University. Other universities represented by some of the other authors include NTU Hospital and College of Medicine and National Health Research Institute in Taipei, Taiwan. The authors were interested in examining an assumption that we all have that when you lift, when your job is associated with lifting heavy loads, that there's a cumulative effect on the lumbar spine. So they really wanted to find out whether or not that was true. And in fact, the bottom line of this study is that the results do suggest a dose-response relationship between Cumulative lifting, meaning lifting over a long period of time and lifting high loads and lumbar disc degeneration. And what they found was that it was particularly prevalent in L5 through S1. The next article is entitled Minimal Clinically Important Difference of the Functional Gait Assessment in Older Adults by Marianne Beninato and her colleagues from MGH Institute and Brookline Healthcare Center. For those of you who are not familiar with the functional gait assessment, this is a modification of the dynamic gait index, and the test was modified in order to improve reliability and reduce the observed ceiling effect of the DGI. So the authors were interested in determining some minimally important difference so that we would know whether when a person showed a particular change in the score, whether it was meaningful or not. What's interesting about this study is they did that not only for the physical therapist, but they also asked the patients to report whether they felt that there was minimally important difference in their performance. They found good agreement among the physical therapists, and the physical therapists were four points change was sufficient for a physical therapist, but poor agreement among the patients. So I think this is a really good model, a good template for others to use in looking at other outcome measures and whether or not the change is clinically important, not only to the therapist, but also to the patient. The next paper is entitled Influences of Wheelchair-Related Efficacy on life space Mobility in Adults Who Use a Wheelchair and Live in the Community. The first author is Brody Skahakibaro from the University of British Columbia, and the other colleagues are all from the University of British Columbia or the University Laval in Quebec, Canada. This study looks at persons, and there are 124 adults who use a wheelchair, who have a mean number of years of 22 years of experience with wheelchair. So this is really exploring the question of whether wheelchair-related efficacy, what you feel confident in your ability to use your wheelchair, is associated with life-space mobility, which means how far do you travel in your wheelchair in the environment beyond your own home, out into the community, and beyond your community. And they also looked at skill and the relationship of how comfortable you are with, your skill in using the wheelchair. So this was an excellent study that explored an area that we haven't really seen a lot in our literature. They used the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health to organize the variables. So they looked at self-efficacy as a body function, remember in the model with body structure and function, and they looked at life space mobility as an activity in the ICF. The bottom line is that, as you might expect, persons who have low wheelchair-related efficacy also have low space mobility. They also found that there was an interaction with skill in using the wheelchair itself. This study really provides lots of opportunity for physical therapists to consider improving a person's ability to move around in the community by being not only skilled but also confident in their skill. It also suggests that different ages of persons who use wheelchair may need to be approached differently. So please read this article. It's very thoughtful. The next paper is a comparison study of the COOS PS and COOS Function and Sports Scores. The authors are Paul Stratford and Deborah Kennedy from McMaster University and the Orthopedic and Arthritic Center Rehabilitation in Toronto. Many of you are familiar with the Knee Injury and Arthritis Outcome Score. You also may have heard that one of the concerns about that particular outcome score is that it's very long to deliver, and so there was a COOS-PS that was developed that was shorter. And what these authors were interested in determining was whether or not the shortened version of the COS-PS was able to help identify patients who were candidates for either conservative or surgical management. The bottom line of this study is that the authors did not find the shortened version of the COS, which is called, again, the COS-PS. They found that it was too restrictive and was not able to really give a comprehensive view of the lower extremity so that it was not good for recommendation. So what they suggested in a very thoughtful way is that rather than shortening a very long form, maybe that what should be done is computer-adapted testing so that you can offer just a few questions that are related to that individual person's function. So I thought it was a very thoughtful paper with a good suggestion for future work. The next paper is entitled Assessment of Glenohumeral Subluxation in Post-Stroke Hemiplegia, Comparison Between Ultrasound and Finger Breath Palpation Methods. Praveen Kumar is the first author. He's from the University of the West of England in Bristol, and his colleagues are from the University Hospital, South Mead Hospital as well. Many of us have been in the clinic and tried to measure the separation that occurs often in the glenohumeral joint post-stroke, and finger breath method has been around for a very long time. It's been demonstrated that radiographic imaging is more effective. And these authors were interested in seeing whether ultrasound was another method that could be used. It would be less expensive, perhaps more accessible to the clinician to measure the separation that occurs following a stroke. And the authors found that, in fact, ultrasound is excellent. They measured the distance between the acromion and the greater tuberosity of the humerus using ultrasound methods. And they found that they were very precise and, in fact, were able to predict a very, very small distance, 0.5 centimeters, with accuracy. So what they would like to do is go on to determine whether or not it's useful to have more accurate measure of glenohumeral subluxation post-stroke. Certainly from a clinician's standpoint, one often is looking at facilitating the activation of the muscles in the area to try to reduce the subluxation. So the question is, would this new technique be more accurate in reporting outcomes? The next paper is entitled Reliability and Validity of the Balance Evaluation Systems Test in People with Subacute Stroke. The authors are led by Butsara Shin Sunkrum from Srin Akenrat. I apologize for mispronouncing the university's name. And from Maidal University in Thailand. This is a study that is done in conjunction with Dr. Fay Horak who is from Oregon at the Oregon Health Sciences Center. And the purpose of the study is an excellent one. So the authors are interested in looking at the reliability and validity of a balanced test in persons with subacute stroke, and that means a stroke that has been present for less than four months. This BEST test, for those of you who haven't followed it, is really considered a test that is good not only to look at whether or not the patient improved, but also may be able to guide treatment intervention and look at the mechanisms that underlie the balance problems. And so that's why authors are so very interested in determining whether the BEST test is, in fact, the best test to use for balance. The results of this study conclude that it was reliable, valid, and sensitive, and had good likelihood ratio for persons with balance problems in the subacute population. The next study is called CORN Rotation Task, a Valid Test for Manual Dexterity in Multiple Sclerosis. The first author is Miriam Heldner from Bern University. Her colleagues are from a local hospital, in Lucerne and from Bern University Hospital. The authors are interested in examining the validation of what is called is a coin rotation task. It has been demonstrated to be useful in diagnosis for persons who have Parkinson's disease, but it is unclear whether or not it can be used in persons with multiple sclerosis. The purpose of the test is to see whether or not a person has difficulty with rapid coordinated finger movements. And they're asked to perform the finger movements by taking a Swiss 50 centime coin and rotating it as quickly as possible among their thumb, index, and middle fingers. And they do this for 20 half turns. And what they did was they came up with a cutoff so that if you're using your dominant hand and it takes longer than 18.75 seconds, or if you're using your non-dominant hand and it takes longer than 19.25 seconds, then there's some indication that there may be a problem, and perhaps that would lead ultimately to a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. The next paper by Trisha Austin and her colleagues from St. Louis University is entitled Introduction to the Great Approach for Guideline Development, Considerations for Physical Therapist Practice. The authors are really interested in talking to the reader about practice guidelines and sort of gold standards for developing practice guidelines. So I see this as a lovely introduction for those of you who are not aware of how practice guidelines are developed. Many of you know that the American Physical Therapy Association has funded or given funds to sections to develop practice guidelines that the journal has come up with tools to use to assess papers that are submitted related to guidelines. So certainly we're talking about how important it is to develop guidelines that suggest optimal practice for particular diagnosis. Tricia Austin and her colleagues are helping you understand how those guidelines are developed so that when someone says they have a guideline, it's very important to be able to critically review and determine whether the method used to develop the guideline was good. So thank you for submitting that article. The final paper is entitled Use of the Theoretical Domains Framework to Develop an Intervention to Improve Physical Therapy Management of the Risk of Falls After Discharge. Susie Thomas and Shiley McIntosh are from the University of South Australia, and they were interested in taking theory and applying the theory to a clinical problem. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background, and then I'm going to ask you to read the paper. So certainly we've all heard about risk of falling after being discharged from the hospital. That is something that's very common. We've also heard about how difficult it is to get research into clinical practice. And so the theoretical domains framework is a theory and steps that have been identified to help bridge the gap between Evidence and practice. So, the authors of this paper describe a four step method that they used to try to improve identification and treatment of patients who were at risk for falls in discharge from the hospital. So, this is a really lovely application of theory to clinical practice, and I encourage you to read it. So, with that, I say have a wonderful November. Here in the States, we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving pretty soon, so I hope that you have an equal event in your country, and I look forward to talking to you in December. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org, and be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.